In the middle of the 20th century, the English writer Dorothy Sayers said this, We are constantly assured that the churches are empty because preachers insist too much on doctrine. Dull dogma, as the people call it. The fact, Sayers continues, is the precise opposite. It is the neglect of dogma that makes for dullness. The Christian faith, she continues, is the most exciting drama that ever staggered the imagination of man. And the dogma is the drama. And at the center, at the center of this dogmatic drama, by dogma here we just mean doctrine, dogmatic drama lies the appearance, God's appearance as man in Jesus Christ, which is the subject of our text this morning from Hebrews chapter 1. This is a text, Hebrews 1, 1 through 4, which takes us into the heights of the dogma that is the Christmas drama. It affirms what we've said here before, namely, high doctrine is highly practical. High doctrine is highly practical. The whole civilization of the West depends on getting certain specific things right. So we're going to make two points here, the speech and the son, the speech and the son. First, the speech. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, the text says, or long ago in some translations, God spoke to our fathers, our ancestors, through the prophets at many times and in various ways. In the original, there are five words here which begin with the Greek letter for P. So if you heard this sentence read, uh, the alliteration would arrest you and it would engage the listener. The whole book of Hebrews, but especially this, this opening section, is a, a literary masterpiece, and this is recognized by, by scholars. And so it's a book about the eloquence of God's word, and it starts eloquently. And it points us to the eloquence of God. Not only the alliteration, but the fact that it's an alliteration about God's speech. So, here at the outset, there is this being asserted. God is not mute. He speaks. This is central to Christianity. We're not conjuring this. We're not off in some mystical flight of fancy. God addresses men and women and children. He speaks. His being is eloquent being. The the Swedish filmmaker Ingmar Bergman recounts one day that he was listening to Stravinsky. And he had this vision of a 19th century cathedral. And he finds himself wandering around the cathedral until he comes before a picture of Christ. And Bergman stops. And he says to the picture, Speak to me. I will not leave this cathedral until you speak to me. 
Of course, the picture did not speak. And later that year, same year, Bergman goes on to make a film called The Silence, which is a film about people who despair of ever finding God. What is sad about this story and what is missed in it is that while God is the eloquent God, he does not take cues from us on where and when and how to speak. He's not at our beck and call. He speaks on his own terms. He speaks by his chosen medium. And he requires of us that if you want to hear God speak, you hear him where he has decided to speak. So I want to look a little more closely at God's speech here in the text. First notice the text says God spoke. Past tense. Long ago or in the past. This refers to the era of the old covenant revelation. God spoke. The writer writes in the first century. But he spoke long ago. The eloquent God speaks. But he doesn't Chatter. He's not a chatterbox. His speaking is interspersed with periods of silence. There are some 400 years of divine silence between the last prophet in the Old Testament and the appearance of Jesus Christ. This is why it's crucial. Crucial for us to heed God when and where he speaks. For God speaks, but he doesn't chatter. So notice, notice the manner in which he spoke. It says, verse 1 says, he spoke at many times. The point is that in the past, in the Old Testament, revelation came in these small, you know, discrete chunks. A little to Adam, a little more to Noah, a little bit over here to Abraham, a little bit more during the time of Moses. Across thousands of years, God scatters his speech. He didn't speak, the text says, simply at many times. The text says he also spoke in many ways. There's a variety of modes. He spoke diversely. He spoke by dreams, visions, law, poetry, narrative. Overwhelming appearances of of his glory and still small voices. Lots of little speech scattered across lots of time in lots of different ways. And the recipients of the speech were our fathers, Jesus' human ancestors, the people of God under the Old Testament. These are our fathers. These are Jesus' ancestors. Jesus emerges out of Israel's history because Jesus cannot be Scandinavian. (laughs) Notice, notice also, the ones who bore this speech, who communicated it. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. This includes all who spoke the word of God in the Old Testament. Now, I want you to think of something about the prophets. If you think of the calling of of some of these prophets in the Old Testament, like Jeremiah or Isaiah, what happens is God touches their mouth. In Isaiah's case, he takes a burning coal to it and and says, I have put my word in your mouth. And so when the prophet speaks, they say, thus 
saith the Lord. Their speech is the very word of Yahweh, the God of Israel, to the nation. So keep that in mind. When we come to verse 2 in the text, something utterly decisive and new takes place, indicated by the opening word, but, meaning but now. We had all this speech in all these ways across all these years to all these people, but now. And grasping this here, this hinge, is is the heart of grasping the wonder of Christmas. Notice the time of this new speech. But now in these last days, the God who spoke in the past has spoken to us by his Son. We move from long ago to these last days. This is the coming of a decisive time. A new time created by God's speech. And so we're dealing here with what we call eschatology. Eschatology is concerned with the end. It's concerned with this great future kingdom of God. But get this, a kingdom which has broken in, which has come decisively in the advent or the appearing of Jesus. The end of time has already commenced in Jesus Christ. It's true, the kingdom has not come fully. It's not been consummated, but it has come. This is the urgency of Advent. This is the reason it's important to heed the speech. The whole time of the church, from the first century till now, is the last days. The days in which the end has been set in motion by the appearance of Jesus Christ. Christmas, then is an eschatological event because God speaks and God's speech confronts us with the ultimate things. It changes the time. They were long ago. You are in the last days. Notice the recipients. In these last days, he's spoken to us. He spoke to our fathers, but now he speaks to you. And the word he speaks to you is new and it's decisive. We're in the last days. They were not. We stand in the privileged position, the time of fuller, light-giving speech. Finally, notice this. Notice how the revelation uh, is born to us now. In the Old Testament, it was scattered, right, diffused, varied speech of God through the prophets. Here now, in these last days, God has spoken to us By his son. Now the speech is concentrated. Now it's located. It's not in many different ways. It's not at many different times. It's not through many different prophets. It's not through many different modes. God's decisive speech takes place in Jesus Christ. By his son or in one who is son, the text says. And this points to a radical distinction from everything that happened before. God spoke by the prophets, but they were mere instruments. They were just bearers of the divine word. Now he speaks by one who is son. This is what Christmas is all about. This is the dogma, which is the heart of the staggering drama. This one is no mere instrument of God's word, no mere prophet, but he is that very word incarnate. The word was proclaimed. The word is now enfleshed. 
Think about it this way. The prophets of which I alluded to earlier, who spoke the very word of God, who could stand before Israel and say, Thus saith the Lord, their speech is infinitely inferior to the speech of God and Jesus Christ. They spoke the word of God. This is the word of God. The word for spoke in verse 1, God spoke, depends on the verb has spoken in verse 2. And so we have something like this in the text. God, having spoken, spoke. And the force of this is as follows. The Son is the full, the final, the decisive, the complete speech of God. Christmas is the celebration of that utterance. So, let me attempt to illustrate what has happened here. Um, Imagine a child, imagine a child who's never met his own father in person. The child longs for the meeting, but it keeps getting deferred. So they gather letters that their father has written, They speak to their father's friends and relations. They pour over diaries, family artifacts. And the child assembles a piecemeal sort of composite picture of the father. In some sense, the child knows the father. They may even know quite a bit about the father. And then finally, the father appears. And the child meets him face to face. The the knowing of the Father is now translated into a whole new frame of reference, would it not be? And now, now they can understand the letters and the diaries and the testimonies they've collected in a new and a more precious and profound way. Something like that, only infinitely greater, has occurred when God speaks in person in Jesus Christ. The, the, the incarnate speech of God, it's this C.S. Lewis's phrase. He says it's like Shakespeare writing himself into one of his plays. That would be a startling new thing if you're a character in the play. That's what God has done. He has written himself into the play. And you, we, have now heard that speech. God written into the story. And this is why we must listen and heed the speech which is Jesus. And this speech is enshrined in apostolic scripture for us. It's once for all and it's final. God does not chatter. A lot of Christians talk as if God is chatting with them all day long. This text will not allow that. There is no more speaking from God than what he's already spoken in Jesus. That's it. He's said everything he's going to say to you and to the human race in his son. He has spoken fully, finally, decisively, and conclusively. He has relativized all dreams, all visions, all narrative, all poetry, all prophets. He has written himself in the story definitively and finally. Find them there. Listen to him there. Instead of conjuring voices. 
To look for speech from pictures in a cathedral or anything else is a sheer tragedy. In fact, it's sacrilege because it ends up accusing the eloquent God of being mute. There are two errors here. We can end up accusing the eloquent God of being mute, or we can trivialize this decisive speech and end up accusing the eloquent God of being a chatterbox who's chatting with everybody all the time. God speaks, has spoken, he doesn't chatter. Listen to this melancholy lamentation by a Jewish writer. One who has rejected the final speech of God, and he looks back on the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. And this writer uses language hauntingly similar to the language in our text. He says this to his Jewish compatriots after the temple's been destroyed in 70 AD. He says, in former times, even in the generations of old, our fathers had helpers, righteous men and holy prophets. But now the righteous have been gathered. The prophets have fallen asleep. We have gone forth from the land, and Zion has been taken from us. We have nothing now except the Holy One and His law. Christmas means that you're not left in that position. You have the Son, the final Word who is one with the Father, the Mighty One, made flesh. That's the speech of God. Attend to it there. God will speak to you fully, decisively, and in a liberating, life-giving fashion in Holy Scripture where the speech that is His Son is forever deposited. So I want to look at the Son. There are seven affirmations in this short text of the Son's glory. The first is in the middle of verse 2. The Son... Is, the, is whom he appointed the heir of all things. Mary's baby is destined to inherit all things as king. That's because he is also the one through whom God made the universe. The son who has appeared is the alpha and the omega, the inheritor of all things, the creator of all things. Right? The Christ of Christmas is the one through whom the Father created the world. In this drama, in this drama, the creator stoops to become a creature without ceasing to be creator. And that, and that brings us to the uh, central luminosity, the third glory on display here in verse 3. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. He's the radiance of God's glory. God's glory refers to God's essential, light-bearing splendor. It's shorthand for his godness, his divinity. And the sun does not merely reflect God's glory. He is its very radiance, its manifestation. Think of this again. You'll remember in the Old Testament, Moses went up onto Sinai, which was covered with thick clouds and darkness. And lightning flashes, and he meets with the Lord for 40 days. And when he comes down, his countenance is so luminous that Israel has to hide their face from it. That's just a creaturely reflection of the glory that Jesus Christ is. 
That's just a taste of it from a creaturely side. This Jesus, this son, is that radiance. This is the the basis for the great assertion in the Nicene Creed that the Son is God of God, light of light. We might say glory of glory. Very God of very God. And he's called the exact representation or the imprint of God's nature. God's nature here means his essential being. The Son is the representation of God's essential being. The word for representation means a stamp or an impression made by a die. The idea is the sun is a repetition, an exact reproduction of the essential being and nature of God. And here we have the basis for the next phrase in the Nicene Creed, that the sun is one substance with the Father. So who this one is, who this one is, is critical. As I've said before, not God in a man, or God mixed with a man, or God inspiring a man, or God using a man, or God dwelling in a man. The prophets were all those things. This is God as a man. Who this one is, that reality, that's the deep glory of Christmas. If this one is not the eternal God, the radiance and splendor of God, then Christmas is a charming story. It's like a Hallmark movie. But if this one is the radiance of God's glory, then Christmas is the story of the world's redemption. And that's why this this difference, whether Jesus is God incarnate or not, is everything. It's the difference between a charming Hallmark movie and the world's redemption. This is the dogma, which is the drama. Strip this dogma away, you have a Hallmark movie. Who he is grounds what he does. Who he is gives what he does its infinite worth, its everlasting power. Notice also the text says here, this is, if you're counting, the fourth glory of the Son, is he sustains all things by his powerful word. He dynamically upholds and directs all things. He brings them to their goal. He who created all things, he who will inherit all things at at the beginning and the end, sustains all things in the middle. From him, through him, to him are all things. And the fifth and sixth glories are in the latter half of verse 3. After This one makes purification for your sins. He sits down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. This is the one who makes purification for your sins. This is priestly language. It's the language of cleansing and washing and purification from defilement, which we all need. Just as there were many, many, many words that culminate in the one final word of the Son, there were many, many, many sacrifices that culminate in the one sacrifice of the Son. And then he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high. High priestly atonement and then enthronement as priest and king. Finally, the seventh glory concerning Christ in the text. He's much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. 
The author here of the book of Hebrews, if you're familiar with it, uses one of his favorite words, superior. And he uses superior superlatively. Christ is much superior to the angels. He far excels the angels. Later, the author will tell us Christ is a superior priest. We have a superior hope based on a superior covenant. We have superior promises, a superior sacrifice, a superior homeland. Christ far excels the prophets at the beginning of the text. And he is much superior to the angels at the end. They were both mediators of revelation. He is revelation. And again, that distinction is the glory of Christmas. This, it's very difficult to scale the heights of this text, especially in one sermon. But we see something of the full range of the person of Jesus Christ and the work of Jesus Christ in these three verses. The fourth verse being a footnote. He's the prophet. He's God's final, full, climactic speech to you. Superior to the prophets, superior to the angels. They spoke the word, he is the word. He's the priest, he's made purification, the text says, for your sins. And he's the king who inherits all things and sits at the right hand of the majesty. As such, he's God of God, the radiance of God's glory. This whole panoramic reality of the person and the work of Christ, this and nothing else, nothing else, this is God's speech in these last days. This is the utterance which creates Christmas. Are you listening? For this Christ is who he is. He does what he does for your sake, for our sakes. God, having spoken, spoke. Those who have ears, let them hear. Merry Christmas. Amen.